This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. A Peruvian Brit named Karina Licorice Quinn has written a novel so full of the spirit of Gabriel Garcia Marquez that I had to stop and double-check that it wasn't he who had actually written it. That novel, The Dust Never Settles, is a marvel, full of wonders and magic, violence and abjection, love and loss, and narrated in a language that feels electric with history. Karina does indeed call on what she refers to as the counter-histories, the untold secondary and tertiary stories of the indigenous pre-colonial people of Peru, specifically Lima, that have been confined to the dust of history. It has been a long time since I've read a novel that cannot seem to contain its own language, but this is the case with The Dust Never Settles. Voices vie for space, speaking in Spanish, Quechua, and English, and descriptions of people and hybridizing culture roll across the page. One World Publishers in the UK, the publisher of two recent Booker Prize winners, has produced as beautiful a physical book as you could imagine. It is a perfect match for this very special novel. Karina and I have a wonderful conversation about belonging in multiple places, in multiple languages, the early influence of Marquez, the need for fiction that can fill the gaps purposefully left by official history, and so much more. While The Dust Never Settles is not yet out in the U.S., you can order it with free shipping from Blackwell's Books in the U.K., making the price a wash. I have links for Karina's novel and all of her recommendations on the website at burnedbybooks.com, where you can also order our new t-shirt. Let's start the show. Welcome back. Today may be the first time you're hearing the name Karina Licorice Quinn, but I'll put a wager down that it won't be the last. 
a Peruvian Brit who splits her time between London and Lima, Karina began her working life as a children's law barrister before earning a PhD in creative writing at Queen Mary University of London. Her first novel, The Dust Never Settles, is the story of Anais, a young pregnant woman who returns to Lima from London to sell her family home. Returning to the Echeveria ancestral home is a catalyst to the unleashing of ghosts. In Lima, at her family's estate, she is confronted with a genealogy of ghosts from her own family line, and startlingly, the spirits of those who worked in the home, built the home, and lived invisible lives all around her family. Karina herself describes the novel as an attempt to bring the counter-narratives of official Peruvian history to life and to dramatize the sins of colonialism, slavery, and injustice that lie beneath the dust of time past. But the plot itself is less than half the story of this remarkable novel. The Dust Never Settles is a tour de force of magical realism in which human time is collapsed into a narrative frenzy of characters and cultures, languages and experiences. Magical realism, a loose term for a form that brings magical elements into a realistic setting, in this novel is an acknowledgement that the things we know to be true, our connections to others across time, can shift our perception of time and place in ways that are beautifully disorienting. In Karina's hands, that disorientation allows oral storytelling to hold its own against book histories. It makes myth live side by side with the so-called official stories of the founding of Peru. And the beauty with which this is accomplished cannot be oversold. Every page of the novel feels like language being reborn. And the rebirth of English in this case is with Spanish let loose at its core, with indigenous languages and African interjections, enlivening the cataracted staidness of English. Every time Anais moves into the focal lens of the story, there are competing stories that demand our attention, that pull us to Spain, to pre-colonial Lima, and back to the present of London. In an age of the minimalist novel in English, Karina has reminded us what we were missing. It is my great pleasure to welcome Karina Licorice Quinn to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm so pleased you're here. And this is a novel that absolutely begs to be read aloud. I found myself reading passages to anyone within earshot. I wonder if you'd be willing to read uh, the section of the novel that concerns the fall of Julia Alvarez Yupanqui. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Julia Alvarez Yupanqui did not stop to marvel at the entanglements of genealogies as Alfarraz's bedded Yupanqui's bedded Echeverria's bedded Ilungas. She was watching instead the arrival of the first Americans trekking across Beringia more than 10,000 years before and how they meandered south and west and populated the empty continent. She watched too the Polynesian explorers reaching the shores of the Towantin Suyu in their voyaging canoes, exchanging their chickens for sweet potatoes. And many years later, she watched Thor Heyerdahl's Kontiki sail west, carried by the Humboldt current as he aimed to prove that the Incas had been mariners. She saw too the micro journeys, her parents rushed from the crowded Corralon in the center of Lima 
to the stretch of dust where they would claim their patch of land and raise four walls of straw matting for a home. From there, her own even shorter journeys appeared, her first steps across the cardboard boxes that served as the floor for the one-room shack, her goings back and forth to school, to the market, and eventually to the yellow house on the hill, where she would start work as an empleada aged 15, her plummet from the second floor window one month before her 18th birthday. Yes, she watched her own final journey falling interminably from that unlucky window, smashing repeatedly against the Mayolica. Even this, her own grisly death, did not slow the roving of her all-seeing eyes, which took in the advent of air travel, the flight map scratching across the skies, radiating from glaring cities out to the world's remotest parts. It occurred to Julia that, while living, she had never left Lima, neither by sky nor sea. Her whole life had been spent with her feet on the ground until her death when she had flown. Now she watched the thousands upon thousands of passengers buzzing this way and that at unnatural speed across the heavens. She saw the flights of Professor Leonard Guest backwards and forwards from London to Lima, Lima to London, and how his black-eyed daughter followed in his tracks, Lima to London, London to Lima, always searching for something, a nameless, intangible, just out of reach something, belonging or sanity or restfulness or home. Humanity, she understood, was restless, itchy-footed, irascible, blighted by ennui. Like a child in the womb, humanity kicks at its enclosures. It writhes and wrenches like a tantrum, like a wasp caught in a web. Because across the ether, through every particle of space and time, from Uhu Pacha to Hanach Pacha, a voice reverberates and it says, bear fruit and multiply and swell the earth and subjugate her and be masters over the fish of the sea and the birds of the skies and over all the beasts that move on the earth. And to the sound of this voice, under its compulsion, humanity beats on. From this, for this back vagabond race, she felt pity and disgust. At last the time had come, as it does for every risen saint, after millennia spent watching the migrations of man, for Julia Alvarez Yupanqui to be compelled into action. She had risen so as to see, now she must descend again to intervene. But in what had, become, in what had come before her, Julia found she could not partake. Pizarro and Atahualpa and Fernando II she could not touch. Try as she might to plunge herself into those moments, to go to Bulanda Ilunga's side as she convulsed with fever or to help Hamet Alfaraz cross the Alberan Sea, she was held back as if by an adverse wind. Like the dreamer who runs but never arrives, she struggled towards them but was borne backwards and away. It was only in the events that succeeded her fall that Julia was able to participate, and even then only in the micro. To influence the decisions of presidents, the judgments of high courts, that was not allotted to her. For her were the small things, the daily, the quotidian miracles of little, forgettable people, resurrecting the pets of children, multiplying the pennies in the cup of a beggar, printing the face of Christ on an old widow's toasted bread, little alleviations in the journeys of the common man. This was the calling of Santa Julia Alvarez Yupanqui. 
That is so beautiful. Thank you so much. I, I had such a difficult time selecting a passage in part because I found most pages um, littered with with such beauty. Um, and but it was Julia's fall, which is um, such an important generative piece of the novel that I, I finally lit upon. And her slow motion fall to her death allows her a vision not only of uh, her own life flashing before her eyes, but of the lives of many intertwined generations of lives connected by blood and kin, enslavement and accident, and on and on. The death of one housemaid becomes a catalyst for a stream of memories that will layer the novel with the richness of history. What do you think is the role of a communal shared sense of memories in this novel? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, memory is um, a central question to the novel, um, partly filtered through Anais trying to come to term with her own memory. So interestingly, the novel was originally titled Mancherizha, which is a Quechua word for a soul sickness um, that exists in, in Andean, many Andean cultures. And it's a soul sickness that arrives um, essentially through witnessing something terrible or violent happen. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a word for trauma. Um, and I think Anais, it becomes clear, is traumatized, but the trauma she carries is actually the trauma of the nation that she has been able to see through the ghosts that she's seen since she was young. Um, so one of the questions that was central to me in writing this novel, and which is why I, I ended up naming it Mancharisca, although we changed the name for publication, was um, how a nation um, negotiates its memory, particularly because Peru, of course, is still working out how it thinks about the internal armed conflict that is generally dated from 1980 to 2000. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission delivered their report in 2003, but the nation is still really working out um, how it looks back on that time, which was a really bloody and terrible traumatic time, um, more so for some than others, of course. Mm -hmm. And so through the novel, although the novel speaks very little about the war, um, the internal armed conflict itself, one of the things was, uh, that I was trying to work out is how we negotiate shared memory, whether it's actually possible. And I see the internal armed conflict in Peru as really having its roots in colonial injustices that have not yet been acknowledged or atoned for. And that's kind of how it all spun out into this um, kind of epic exploration of the things that have been the amnesia that people engage in. Mm -hmm. um, that means that memories become gilded with dishonesty, I suppose, um, in how we forget the things that we, well, it's interesting to query who we is, right? But in the things yeah. that pushed into oblivion in the official memory of a nation. Yeah, that's that's wonderfully described, and how certain um, traumas through this idea that you're 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 prompting here with a kind of national malaise or sickness or um, spiritual sickness can be embedded in in people who didn't actually experience that, but who understand through a kind of sharing of of stories and narratives, but also a kind of understanding of, as you say, the gilding over of history. Um, have a sense that something is, you know, is is rotten underneath. Um, for me, one of the great pleasures of the dust never settles is its subtle intertextuality. 
Julia's telescopic vision of Lima's history is wonderfully elusive, uh, I think, of the fall from a hijacked plane of the two protagonists in Rushdie's satanic verses. As Gabriel midfall becomes the Archangel Gabriel, he begins to weave together the many threads of memory and history that will become the story. Rushdie is borrowing and adapting from the boom era writers in Latin America who developed a mature usage of magical realism in the 60s and 70s. Did you feel indebted at all to that tradition as you were employing some aspects of that form in your novel? Definitely. So it's interesting that you mentioned the Satanic Verses because I haven't read the Satanic Verses to my shame. Mm, <laughs> I know, Midnight, not at all. <laughs> yeah, but Midnight's Children was really influential for me. Mm, um, mm -hmm. As I was trying to work out how to weave time and times together in order to tell um, a lot of different narratives, but to tell them succinctly and powerfully enough that you can cram a lot in, but each one doesn't lose its intensity because it was important to me that each story, each of the mini stories within the greater story are memorable and um, don't get lost. Um, it was Midnight's Children that really showed me how to do that because I think Rushdie in that novel, and I'm sure in Satanic Verses too, but I haven't read it, um, creates such compelling, memorable characters so quickly and mm. tells um, powerful stories so succinctly that, are, that somehow feel really, really rich, but are done so briefly. Um, so yeah, I, I owe a great debt to Salman Rushdie. Um, and certainly I owe a great debt to the boom writers of magic realism in Latin America. I mean, Gabriel Garcia Marquez was my first introduction to that. So I often tell people how I was schooled um, in the UK until I was 16. And I always loved studying English. But I studied a lot of the English literary canon and never always admired what I was reading, but never really felt like there was a voice being shown to me that could be anywhere similar to mine as a writer. Mm. And it was when I did um, the IB in New York, um, I went to the final two years of high school in New York and my English teacher introduced me to Gabriel Garcia Marquez and suddenly a kind of light switched on. I was like, okay, here's mm. a voice that feels <laughs> like something I might I might speak in. Um, so absolutely, and Isabel Allende, Laura Esquivel, absolutely, they've all had a massive influence on my work. Well, I would say that your your style is incredibly Marquesian, um, and so that that influence and that um, you know you're paying tribute to that um, connectivity that you found in the in the text is there, and it's um, you know I, I I find that often you you find pale comparisons to to Marquez, um, but I feel like you're you're doing a great justice to his work and the way that you employ magical realism, um, which is such a loose and baggy term. Um, but I think that the way you're talking about uh, Midnight's Children is helpful in understanding why it's an important uh, style for you. And, uh, and certainly in Midnight's Children, Rushdie is doing that work work of thinking about how an individual can embody all these different communal mem uh, memories of a nation and how even that body begins to kind of like split and fray um, when the kind of deep and un untested and untreated wounds of the nation start to sort of come forward in storytelling. And I think that's absolutely here in your in your novel. The Echeverria House is the wellspring of the novel's memories. 
Anais has come to sell the ancestral home, but the memories contained within of privilege and servitude and enslavement won't let go so easy. Um, and she's haunted by the many voices of those who built, lived in, and worked in her ancestral home. Why did you decide on a house as the nexus for all these competing memories? Well, there are sort of two answers to that. And one is the um, kind of journey that I went on as a writer and quite personal one, which is simply that my Peruvian grandparents passed away and their house in Lima that for me was um, probably the house in which I'd been happiest in my life was put up for sale so that it could be torn down and apartments would be built in its place. This happens oh, no. everywhere in Lima. <laughs> um, the house was nothing like the house in the novel, um, but the um, spirit of the house feels similar to me. Um, so in reflecting on my pain at the idea of this house that really mattered to me being torn down, and indeed it, indeed it was, um, I, I reflected on why houses where one has been happy um, mean so much because ultimately, you know, they're just bricks, concrete, mortar, whatever. But there's so much more than that. Um, Gaston Bachelard in ah. The Poetics of Space talks about how um, physical spaces hold time for us because mm -hmm. we can't live in more than one time at one, any one time, right? Mm -hmm. um, but spaces almost absorb time. He uses the metaphor of them being like alveoli that breathe in time and that really spoke to me and then from there it became this metaphor of house that absorbs and imbibes time um and i think i mean we see in the gothic right that the house also serves that function in that houses hold more than the time that is present they hold also what was past and in my novel also what is to come um and then the house of course became metaphor for nation in my novel which i think is quite a natural metaphor um in that, you know, if one were to think of nationhood as family, as kind of a kinship network, which of course is problematic in loads of ways, but if we, one were to think of it as that, um, then the house which holds that kinship, that family, um, it, it kind of seems like an obvious and useful, fruitful metaphor. Um, particularly when you fold on top all the overhang of the Gothic, right, and sort of hauntedness and basements yeah. that contain all the rottenness and, mm -hmm. um, it, I found it quite useful. I was actually just going to mention Bachelard, and I think <laughs> uh, you know it, it perfectly um, embodies a lot of the work you're doing with the house. Um, I always, ever since reading him in graduate school, I've been drawn to that idea that the the sort of uh, garrets and attics of our of our youth um, hold in some way these kind of long um, contained histories, and I, I love it as a way of thinking through these structures that are so important to us. Mm. I, I was thinking of another um, literary um, intertext that I felt very much kind of coursing through your work, which has to do with houses, and that is um, Arundhati Roy's The God of Small Things and her figuration of the history house. Uh, in particular, Roy uses the history house as a structure to hold up a pre-colonial history that is um, is in some ways destroyed and left only as dust by imperialism and colonialism. Do you envision your novel as a kind of history house, a container for certain untold and untellable histories that have been washed over? 
I mean, I'd love to think of it that way. I don't know if I dare claim something so lofty, but I'd love to think of it that way. I mean, um, so the novel is just now being translated into Spanish, but it's only going to be sold in the Spanish in Spain um, for now. Um, I don't yet have a Latin American publisher, but I. it's interesting that I wrote in English, but the kind of reader that I had in my head was actually fellow Peruvians. Um, and in particular, fellow Limenians who may think about um, the, the story of Peru in a particular way that has perhaps forgotten the pain that has mm. been pushed to the margins. So it's interesting that I was writing in English, but really thinking of speaking to a, an audience that would primarily be Hispanophone. <laughs> mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I really, the reason I mentioned this to come back to your question is um, I'm really looking forward to seeing hopefully how it's received in Peru one day when the Spanish translation is hopefully sold there. Because I think it's particularly in that context where this idea of my novel holding all these stories kind of being a history house would be most pertinent. And I'd really love to know how those Peruvian readers react to it. Yeah, hopefully that will happen. Well, this anticipates a, a question that I had about the the novel being in English, which I I guess I felt and in a kind of deep seated way as I was reading it that although it is a novel in English, the kind of Spanish teeming throughout, and it's the way that it was speaking of with such intimacy about uh, Peruvian history made it feel as though it was something more like a novel of world literature, by which I mean where belonging is less fixed and it is less about a kind of stated national identity of a novel and more the belief that you can um, transgress uh, national boundaries to try and understand belonging as more fluid. Is that something that you thought at all about as you were choosing to write it in English and um, but to also, you know, bring Spanish to bear in such a strong way? Yeah, I mean, I didn't necessarily think in particular about how the novel would be categorized, right? So obviously, magic realism was something that was floating around in my head because I was drawing on and influenced by writers like Garcia Marquez, Allende, Rushdie. Um, but certainly this notion of crossing national boundaries or, you know, imagine these imagined boundaries that national boundaries are um, and belonging in more than one place at once um, is something that applies to the novel and applies to me, right? So I'm a writer that is in diaspora. Um, and, and of course, that did actually make finding a publisher for my work kind of tricky, <laughs> particularly mm. in the mm -hmm. UK, because... Um, Latin American writing, Latin American identity, Latin American history in the UK is much less recognized in the mainstream. I think a lot of um, publishers and probably readers, but I hope not, um, kind of see Latin America as not really relevant um, to, to the UK. Mm. So in that sense, writing something that so, is so intimately about Peru, but also about being Peruvian British, um, it took a little bit of work to convince people that that was something anyone would care about. And I think that's something that um, a lot of writers who exist transnationally and write transnationally probably encounter. But certainly in the UK, where any reading that takes place in, on, in stories that apply outside the UK borders, I think people will be more interested in stuff that's coming out of the old British Empire 
rather than coming out of Latin America where I think the reaction is like, how does this apply? Why should I care about this? Um, so that was kind of tricky. But yeah, I, I think the novel is one that probably would fairly be placed within world literature. And um, it, I mean, I think it's clearly a transnational piece of work. Yeah, and that is interesting because as an American reader, of course, Latin America felt instantly important to kind of my reading life, but also to the way I think of American history writ broadly. Um, and so I hadn't I hadn't put it in my head that that would be a different experience for a, at least a kind of um, traditional or even a kind of conservative British reader. But I'm I'm very glad that um, One World saw saw fit to see its urgency for the British reader as much as the American. As it concerns your uh, Peruvian Britishness, but also your protagonist, Anais, who is the daughter of, uh, is it an Irish father? Is that right? Am I remembering? No, so he is English. He's English. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and then a Peruvian mother, and you know she is herself then pregnant with her British partner's child. Um, she worries over what she calls her Celtic complexion, mistaken for a gringa, um, while regretting that her daughter will be only one quarter Peruvian and estranged from her culture and people, possibly. Um, this anxiety about who gets to properly belong to a place, a nation, a culture, courses through the novel. What did you hope to say about race and belonging with all of its nuances and textured complications in The Dust Never Settles? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm not sure I hoped to say anything uh, because I'm quite nervous about saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable, um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I wanted to open up questions. I mm. think that's what mm -hmm. I always hope my writing will do, is just start a conversation. Um, and these conversations are ones that I've been having with myself my whole life. Um, because, I mean, growing up in Peru, I was always the English girl. And in Britain, I was always the Peruvian girl. <laughs> <laughs> which as a child of, of from kind of mixed cultural heritage I'm sure all children who have kind of dual cultures or more go through this crisis of identity where every time you fly back and forth or every time you move from kind of one family household to the other you become labeled differently mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it is kind of confusing especially when you grow up in well I spent a lot of my childhood in the English Midlands which is not especially or wasn't then especially diverse um, so you, you're comparing yourself to all the other children who are just one thing um, and you think, okay, gosh, am I some sort of strange hybrid freak? What is happening? Hmm. Um, and of course, in those days, there was still the attitude that sort of raising children bilingual was confusing for them. And that was a oh, bad yeah. thing to do. <laughs> I'm glad that my parents ignored that. But, you know, you can't constantly come across mindsets that tell you that you're odd. And um, when you're when you're little, you kind of think, yeah, I probably am odd. Hmm. Um, now that I'm a grown up, it's fine. But certainly... Um, when I was, I am a mother now, but when I was thinking over years about, you know, will I become a mother? What, I'm married to an English man. So again, one of my big worries was that when I have a child, will they appreciate Peruvian history, culture? Will they speak Spanish? Will I be able to raise them with an appreciation of Peruvianness, whatever that might mean or whatever it means to me? And um, 
am I entitled to do that if they're only going to be, you know, notionally a quarter um, Peruvian? Like, should I be doing that? Um, particularly now that there's so much angst about, you know, cultural appropriation and things. Oh, yeah. Um, so all of that sort of was an overhang to, to my mind. Um, and then in Peru, there are huge questions about, um, I mean, Peru's culture has been influenced by all the waves of migration that Peru has had through slavery, through indentured workers that were brought from Asia, through various waves of migration from Europe. But um, I think the, the contribution that has been made by Asian Peruvians and Afro-Peruvians is often ignored. And the mm -hmm. kind of dual heritage that gets emphasized is always the dual heritage of um, the Spanish and then the Inca. Um, with a focus on the kind of nobility of the Inca, right? Ignoring all of the non-noble, regular indigenous people <laughs> that oh, existed right. and continue to exist in Peru. And I hoped that a little bit the novel would just highlight all the contributions that have been made to Peruvian culture and should be um, acknowledged and admired. A lot of the time, those contributions are whitewashed and what they've contributed to the culture is lifted up and sort of centered, but the people who have done the contributing and done the inventing and done the work of creating get invisibilized. And I hoped that the novel would do a little bit of work of reminding people of the actual people who did the contributing. Well, you use a, a very powerful artifact of memory in the novel of the Luba people who are mm -hmm. um, from what is now uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, you reference the Lukasa, the memory mm -hmm. board um, that is uh, crucial uh, to Afro-Peruvians who were taken as, as slaves um, or were part of um, various migratory routes. Did you think of this particular artifact as being um, metaphorically important to the way you were wanting to treat that kind of unseen, as you say, history of Peru? Yeah, definitely. And I thought, so I was quite nervous about including the Lucasa because um, I went to Lima to do archival research on, among other things, um, slavery in Peru and looked through so many um, old manuscripts, including sort of lists of um, people that were brought in enslavement and um, where they had come from. But there was no, uh, beside these sort of lists and numbers, of people whose bodies are being treated as commodities. There was nothing um, of narrative or of substance to tell me about what their lives were like before they came over. Um, the cultural things, stories, um, you know, practices that they brought with them. And so I had to do quite a lot of digging to find something that would exemplify the kinds of practices and cultures that these people would have come from. And eventually I came across the Lucasa. It was important to me to particularize and be very specific about the cultures that would have been brought over because they have been mm -hmm. invisibilized and forgotten. And so I thought I need something really concrete um, from at least one culture that I can use. And then the Lucasa, of course, as soon as I came across it and learned about what this practice is, I thought, gosh, this is really powerful as a metaphor for um, creating memory and retaining memory and passing memory on. Um, so I see it as quite a central organizing metaphor for the novel, even though it doesn't 
take up much of the novel. And I actually have an article in which I speak about, speak a little bit about the Lucasa coming out in the Journal of Transatlantic Studies next year. Oh, fabulous. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I was struck by it as, a, um, as quite a powerful um, metaphor and a, perhaps a, a competing one to the house, because obviously this is, you know, the Afro-Peruvian um, folks in your novel would not have had access to live in an estate yeah. or even a, you know, a fixed house like that. And so the way that you have an architecture that can hold memories um, changes and, and becomes more sort of micro, but still very powerful um, and still evocative and something that can be added to by generations and then traced back. So I found it to be a very powerful competing narrative. Yeah, I love that interpretation. And I guess also an obvious comparison between the two is the sort of selfishness of a house, right? <laughs> Whereas the <laughs> the selflessness or this the kind of um, service that the Lucasa is, the Lucasa is about serving the community mm. um, and giving back and um, holding memory, but holding memory for everyone rather than um, erecting walls that hold memory for a select few and exclude everyone else. Yeah. Certainly the the walls of the house, right? The walls and the gates and the and the fences of the house are a really important symbol in the novel of exclusion and um, privilege and oppression through exclusion, which of course the Lucasa memory board is not like that at all. It's to be shared. So yeah, one is a yeah. One one is a closed door and one is a very open door. Um, yeah, I like I like the way you formulate that. So the dialogue of the novel, as I mentioned, is is peppered with Spanish, interwoven um, and supplemented with dialects and traces of indigenous languages, and indeed the novel itself marks its chapters in alternating Spanish and English numbers. Did writing the book help you better understand the relationship between um, language and belonging to multiple communities as both you and Anais do? Um, I think the novel more just expresses the understanding I already have. I actually wish it had more Spanish in, <laughs> but um, I kind of was aware in writing it that um, if it was too... Um, infused with Spanish, at some point it probably entirely excludes the monolingual Anglophone reader. Um, so I did have that in my mind. At some point in my life, I'd love to write a completely Spanglish novel and have it published. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, my experience of language my whole life has been moving between Spanish and English and indeed speaking in both at the same time. And so it's important for my work to reflect that as a, as a reflection of my own voice, my own voice inside my head and my own voice when I move through the world. Um, the inclusion of um, mainly Quechua and bit smatterings of other indigenous languages um, was a conscious decision for me because I thought it was important to have that representation there. So much to my shame, I don't really speak Quechua. I feel that I should, um, and I'm trying my best to learn in the time, the minimal time that I have available <laughs> to me. But I thought if I'm if I'm writing a novel that is really quite explicitly politically 
making opening up conversation about um, oppression of indigenous peoples and the wrongs of colonialism that haven't been acknowledged. If there is no Quechua in this novel, that is going to be a problem. And so I really did my best learning Quechua that would be relevant and including it. Um, I I would love it if there were more, but mm. I don't speak good enough Quechua to do it. <laughs> I'll try in the future. Um, yeah, sorry, go on. No, well, I was going to say that it it did strike me as a a, a political um, decision to leave the the Spanish and Quechua untranslated. I mean, there's a glossary, um, but uh, you know, in the moment, it is it's untranslated, and you know, for um, a monolingual reader, it is a it, it is then requires a kind of contextualization that is very easily done, um, but it also is a reminder you are not necessarily the audience for this um, particular moment in the in the novel. And I feel like that's, you know, there aren't that many novels still that that do that. And even though it's become more prominent, I think it was uh, certainly a conscious decision on your part and, and had to be one, I'm sure, in conversation with the publisher. Did you, were you very conscious about deciding that or was it just the natural way that you wrote it? Yeah, so I was um, really influenced by um, Doris Summers' notion of um, slaps and embraces in the book. Oh, what is the title of it now? Something like Proceed with Caution when engaging minority writing in the Americas or something like that. I've mm. probably completely butchered that title. But um, in that book, Summer talks about um, texts which consciously... Um, push the reader away a little and remind the reader, you are not the reader here. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I spent quite a lot of time thinking about who the narrator was speaking to. And certainly the narrator isn't really speaking to the Anglophone Brit, um, even though that I knew was going to be my first audience because it would probably be published first here in English, not in translation, and it would be the Brit who would read it first. As I said earlier, really in my head, I was sort of talking to Limenian Peruvians, probably privileged Limenian Peruvians with primarily European heritage. Um, that's really who I was in conversation with in, in notionally in my head. Um, and so the Anglophone Brit, the Anglophone reader anywhere, I feel like the, that pushing away through the inclusion of the Spanish and um, not translating it immediately, not um, italicizing it and therefore othering the language, which is mm -hmm, a conversation mm -hmm. I had with my publisher. Um, there is that pushing away that happens. I actually, and, and that for me was conscious and intentional, partly because it was, that's the pushing away that my mother and my sister and I experienced in the English Midlands. You know, there was xenophobia and we were quite often told to stop speaking in Spanish in public in quite aggressive terms. <laughs> and so for me, sharing that experience with the reader of saying, here's how it feels to be pushed away a little. Um, mm -hmm. How does that feel to you was important. But um, I also wanted there to be a welcoming back in, which is why I ultimately accepted to put the glossary in the back. I originally wasn't sure about the idea. And then I thought, well, actually, if I'm pushing the, the reader away a little, let me then extend a hand of friendship through the glossary again. But accessing the glossary requires some effort on the reader's part. You know, they have to intentionally does, go yeah. there. They have to flick the pages. They have to use their memory to retain the information. So that's, there's that kind of give and take, which I think is nice. Um, 
and and the same idea as what Doris Summer speaks about, right, of kind of slaps and embraces. You embrace and then you push away, you embrace and push away, and there's that nice negotiation between text and reader. Yeah, and that and that particular sort of form of the multilingualism then is in perfect concert with the the actual sort of plot and narrative of the novel. So I think it's um, you know it endorses what the novel is already trying to do. Um, before we leave you, I I was wondering if we might hear some of your reading recommendations. Can you tell us what you've been reading recently that you really enjoy? And are there forthcoming books that you might flag for us ahead of their publication? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the most exciting books that I have read this year, it came out earlier this year in the UK, and I think it's also out in the States, is called Open Water by Caleb Azuma Nelson. Set in London, it's an exploration of, gosh, I mean, so many amazing themes, but um, race, uh, love, art, um, belonging. And what's particularly exciting about it is that it does some really interesting stuff with the novel form. Um Reading it feels like reading poetry, but it is a novel, but then the kind of episodic and um, really pensive way ta uh, themes are tackled almost feels like nonfiction. So it's really cool. Um, a really cool book. Oh, I I'm don't really know. I'm excited about it. Oh, it's brilliant. I really recommend it. I've put it on my reading list for my students. Um, and it also helps that Caleb Azuma Nelson is a great person too. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, great writer and a great person. Uh, really nice guy. Um, I'm currently reading One Sky Day by Leonie Ross. I haven't finished it. Um, it's a work of magic realism. Magic realism that is Caribbean in spirit rather than kind of um, Hispanic American. I'm loving it. It is um, kind of beautiful, a beautiful example of kind of whimsical and unsettling magic realism that uses lovely, um, weird magical moments that are also powerful metaphors for different kinds of human experience and, and politics too. So yeah, I really recommend One Sky Day by Leonie Ross. Um, a poetry collection that came out this year by a Mexican-British writer. It's a debut poetry collection. Um, the poet is Maya Elsner. She's actually doing her, I think she's doing an MFA in the States at the moment. Um, I think she's going to be huge. It's called yeah. Overrun by Wild Boars, published by a small press in the UK called Flip Die that have done great work at um, diversifying publishing and getting really amazing new names out into the world. Um, her writing is just, I mean, breathtakingly good. And she explores um, identity, belonging, migration. She has, um, as I said, Mexican, British, Jewish heritage. Um, and she kind of explores all of the impact of all of those on her and her poems, just amazing. And then in nonfiction, When We Cease to Understand the World by Benjamin Labatut. Oh, I um, can't wait to get that. <laughs> Yeah, it's really amazing. <laughs> um, reading each essay, um, just you you just end each one completely breathless and think, I have learned so much and it's so much that I've now forgotten it. I need to start again. <laughs> so I'm going through it quite slowly because every time I finish an essay, I then have to start it again. Um, I really admire the way Labatut kind of um, transitions. I find as a writer, transitions are hard. Um, you know, transitioning between times and places and scenes and topics. And these essays just are exemplary in doing that and making it feel so natural, taking loads of notes as I read.
Is it not fiction? It's essay, then. Um, I had yeah. thought was a sort of uh, pastiche novel. That may be true. I um, And I don't I mean, know, because I don't have it in my hands yet, so you would be much more familiar than I would. I think there's probably fiction. To, it's been sold as fiction, so okay. I think it probably is fictionalized, but they read like essays each time. Oh, interesting. And they... Um, I mean, I'd be interested to sit down and compare what is being said with what historical sources say, because when you read it, it reads as historical nonfiction. Mm. Um, but it may be that when I sit down and actually look at what is true and what isn't, it's actually completely fictionalized. I don't know. We'll see. Um, <laughs> right now, I'm kind of just enjoying the journey. Well, that makes it more exciting rather than less exciting, I think, to have that kind of um, wonderful confusion of genres. That's yeah. my favorite kind of novel. Yeah, and and it, that, this question of sort of, as a writer, what you do with history and mm. what you do with when you write in between, in the spaces in between historical fact is an interesting one. Because, um, you know, another way of interpreting my novel is that it's, historic, it's a historical novel. Um, but of course, I've had to do a lot of making up of things Mm -hmm. in the gaps that exist in the archives. So it's an interesting question, um, you know, at what point something that draws on history but fictionalizes the gaps in between, when do we move from kind of history to fiction? It's an interesting yeah, and and I and I wonder if a better way to actually talk about so-called official histories is that they make up things to to fit the gaps and the transi mm -hmm. transitions. But we never we never dare to speak of history in those terms. Um, but that might um, give give fiction its proper place as a as a parallel and equally important discourse of what has happened in the past. And certainly, yeah. that's what your your novel feels like as a reader. Yeah, I mean, on Labatut's book. So it's interesting because I'm looking at the back and it says, clearly says fiction. And of course, shortlisted for the 2021 International Booker Prize. But when I picked it up in the bookshop, it was on a table with nonfiction. How fascinating. So interesting. Yeah, interesting one. Well, th these are amazing. Um, and I love the fact that I, um, uh, except for the last, I don't know any of them, uh, which is going to make for great reading, um, which is exactly <laughs> what I selfishly hope for these things. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Thank you. I'm honored that you asked me. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Well, that's all from me today. My great thanks to Karina Licorice Quinn, whose novel The Dust Never Settles is linked to on our website at burnedbybooks.com, where you can find links to all Karina's wonderful recommendations, as well as all of our previous episodes and book suggestions. If you're a regular listener and might enjoy some podcast merch, our first ever Burned by Books t-shirt is available for sale at the website and in the bio section of our Instagram page. I am always wearing at least two of them under my regular clothes, and you should too. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.